Now I'm going to pass it off to Brian, and he's going to share about becoming a covenant community. Thank you, Joel. All right. Good morning, everyone. I know it's, uh, it's one of those mornings that it's tough to keep the tent warm. So the, the prime spots are the little bit of sunshine back there. And the rest of us to sit close together and snuggle and stay warm. And uh, we'll enjoy the morning. Um, I want to announce something that I believe is really um, foundational and important for, for the future of our church. And that is that we are going to do a four-week class on becoming a covenant community. When we started the church 10 years ago, it was a very small group of people. And there were, there were things that we held on to as a church family. And as a church um, ages and grows, one of the things that we have realized is we have not done a very good job of teaching others what it means to be a part of a church family, of a, um, of a covenant community. And so what we would like is, and I, I wrote just down one or two sentences because I thought, might as well just get exactly what I mean. So um, we are going to have a class called Becoming a Covenant Community, and it's going to be about who we are and what roles and responsibilities we all have in making the gathering a healthy and gospel-centered church. And so we want to take um, a little chunk of time and, and teach from God's word. What does it mean to be a part of a healthy gospel-centered church? And um, so uh, we admit that that's a, a, an area that we need to improve on and, and do a better job. And so we think that step one in that is having a, a four-week class where there is um, a time of teaching and, and a time of dialogue. So... Um, Joel has a little clipboard, and there's two different times we will offer it this winter right now. There will be a Sunday afternoon class. I forget the time. It's on there, 4.30, I believe. There will be child care provided for that one, and then also a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock where there will not be child care. So that's our winter class. We'll do it again in the spring. The plan is uh, winter, spring summer, fall. So four different times um, that we'll offer it based on, on our need. Okay, if you have any questions about that, feel free to, to talk to me. And um, we want to move forward growing together as a healthy church. I think that's it as far as announcements. We are going to um, continue our study on um, embracing the call of God on our lives. Um, I believe that a life worth living is a life that embraces the call of God on our lives. And so last week we looked at the life of Abraham and how God spoke to him and, and called him to embrace um, the calling that God had upon his life. This morning we are going to look at a guy named Matthew. And if you have your Bible, um, turn there and I will read it. And then we'll give um, a brief context and then we'll work our way through that. Okay, so Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when Jesus, excuse me, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so th this morning, we will look at the simplicity of the call on Matthew's life. In this context, there is one command and one response. And the command in this specific context is that God is calling all of us to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. To think carefully about our lives, as Matthew does in this story, and contemplate what does it mean to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. Well, the context here is interesting. Jesus is walking um, in an area uh, along the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, and he passes by a gentleman who is a tax collector, and, and many of you maybe have heard um, what I'm about to share before, but a tax collector was a despised person because he was collecting taxes on his own people. If you recall, Rome is in control. Rome is ruling. Um, the area is a town called Capernaum, and a Roman garrison is there um, providing um, security and, 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 uh, and influence within the community. Matthew partners with Rome and collects taxes on his own people. And so he is a despised person. Um, he is partnering with Rome, an oppressive power. On top of that, Matthew's income was based on whatever extra he could collect on top of the taxes. So whatever you think about taxes right now, today, in America, at least there are structures in place that prevent corruption. And in this time and place, there was far less of that. And so he was despised. He was looked down upon as a man of corruption. And it's in this context that Jesus approaches the outsider, the despised one. And as we know, as cultures shift and cultures come and go, the despised people are always changing. So to help you today, think about who are the despised ones today in our culture? Well, this is the person that Jesus approaches. And in this context, Jesus calls this man to leave everything behind. And so um, the beauty of this passage is its simplicity. So my job is to not take something simple and make it complicated. My job is to take something simple and explain it so that we can live it out. So here's how we'll break it up this morning. Number one is that Jesus calls you to leave everything behind. To leave everything behind in your life that will compete with Jesus. Matthew just gets up and walks away. We can grasp that, but what does it actually mean for your life today? It means that you're willing to think about things that will rival Jesus in your life. That you're willing to look at the things that provide safety and security in your life. And you're willing to leave them behind for Christ. 
to leave anything behind in your life that you might look to besides Jesus to be your safety and security. Matthew was an outcast. He, he clearly would know this about himself. He had a stable and secure job. He had a, um, what most commentators would say a very um, satisfactory and, and um, good income through his corruption. And it's in this context that Jesus offers him one command. And the command is just two words, follow me. And so to help us um, open and cl clarify our understanding of this, let's think for a moment about another person that this happens to. And it happens in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is on his way to imprison Christians. And Jesus in a very similar way, says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, Saul at this time, his name's changed later, says this, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Rise and go. So the command is, is simple in itself as well. Rise and go. So what does Saul do? He got up and did what Jesus said. But let's, let's turn to a place where the Apostle Paul is going to elaborate on what this means, the simplicity of leaving everything behind. If you have your Bible, turn to um, Philippians chapter 3. And I can't recall if we're going to have it on the screen or not. Did I email that to you, Jesse? I did? No? It doesn't matter. Turn, if you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. And let me read this to you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 says this. To elaborate on what this means to leave everything behind. The Apostle Paul says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so let's just spend just a second thinking through these three verses and how we can um, break them down and see some parallels with them. So chapter 7 Note this, that Paul is saying, whatever gain, whatever I had in my life, whatever gain I had, he says in verse 7. Verse 8, he says this, the word everything, whatever gain, everything. And then in verse 8, he says all things. So there is this, this language, these words that Paul is using, that everything in his life that he once held on to as valuable, he now counts them as loss. Well, what are the things that Paul is going to hold on to that he um, viewed as supremely important? If you have your Bible, look back just a couple of verses, or one verse, and here's what Paul says. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Whatever it is in your life that you build your confidence on, count it as loss. And what does the Apostle Paul have here in mind in this list? 
It's a moral record. It's a list of things that he built his identity on. These things, and he says there, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does this look like today? Well, what, what do people hold on to? What do people identify? What do people have to build their confidence? Well, it's a big range of things. It could be some letters next to your name that say PhD. It could be a law degree. It could be um, the car you drive, where you live, the awards, the Emmys, the Grammys, the recognition that we look to in life. The ability to be charming, the ability to um, <clears throat> make money, to be well-liked. All of these things that people use to build an identity, to build confidence, the Apostle Paul says he's going to count them as lost. Here's another pattern of words that appear in this passage. It is the word counted. So Paul says this in verse 7, I counted, that's past tense. So there was a clear moment in the Apostle Paul's life where he said, I'm counting all of these things as, as lost. Like this is a foundational turning point in my life. And then he says it again, but the tense of the word is different. He says this, I count, and it's present tense, and he says this, that I continually count, I continually consider Counting things as loss. And then he says it again. In the, the last group of words that I count them as rubbish. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying this. What does it mean to leave everything behind to follow Christ? Whatever those things are that you hold on to that build your confidence, that build your identity, those things that compete with Christ, he counts them as loss. Why? why? Why would Paul do this? Well, here's the repetition of words again. For the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, in order that I might gain Christ. That is the repetition again. So if we, if we want more of Christ, if we want more of Jesus in our lives, what is required is we count things as loss. That we think carefully about our lives, that the things that will rival and compete with Jesus Christ in your life, you consider those things as loss. There's an interesting word here that the Apostle Paul uses, <clears throat> and it's the word rubbish. And um, I read a, a paper by a seminary professor this week on this word, just, just skim through it. And it's really interesting because there are, two, there are two interpretations of it. And the seminary professor said this, that most translations take the much more palatable, much more polite, much more comfortable translation. And that is the translation that the ESV uses, and it's the translation called rubbish. But he writes this, 
that if you take the honest Greek word for this, it is the word human waste. And here's what's really funny about seminary professors who struggle with words. He wrote the word crap, and then comma, and then the next word was S-H-I, or excuse me, S-H dot 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 T. And he felt comfortable saying that. So can't write out the whole word. It makes people a little bit nervous. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. These things that I once built my life on, the foundation of my life, are now viewed as complete waste, as rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And so this simple command that Jesus says to Matthew is rather profound. It's completely disruptive to our lives to think through. It is not a command of adding a little sprinkling of Jesus to our lives. It's a radical transformation that happens. And we see this in a couple of ways. Jesus regularly changes the names of people whose lives have been radically transformed. If you read this exact same story in the other Gospels, the name that is used is the name Levi. And in Matthew's narration of it, it's the name of Matthew. And Jesus changes his life. The same thing we find with Peter, Cephas and Peter, Saul to Paul. And so this is a radical transformation. Jesus is saying this simple phrase, renounce everything that competes with me in order to gain more of Jesus. <clears throat> if you want more of Jesus, learn to renounce the things that rival Christ. Christ calls us to leave behind everything that rivals him. And we think about this, and it's a continual thing, because here's what we... <clears throat> we're often tempted to think this. If I can just have this, then I'll be happy. If I can just have this other thing, then I'll be happy. And I was thinking about it. There's a little bit of humor in this. I was thinking about this week, um, just about how it changes with the stages of life. <clears throat> Don't mean to be offensive, but it just kind of made me laugh as I was thinking about this week. I used to teach eighth grade. And one of the things that you would notice by just observing um, students and, uh, and often in particular girls, just this longing for friendship. Just, just the idea of having a friend, having someone to talk to, 14, 15-year-old girl, just enjoying that, having that. And how that, um, that desire, th those are real things. And those are real things that can rival Christ. And then I thought, okay, here's the extreme opposite of that. Last su summer of 2019, took the family up to Mammoth, and on the way we stopped. There's a small little stream that we used to fish when the boys were very little near Big Pine. And um, the place where we normally fish was completely overgrown, and so we couldn't fish there. And, and I met this old guy who lived in a little small community near Big Pine, and he's like, yeah, go, go, down, go downstream a little ways and um, guy's beer in his truck and just doing his thing. And, and so I go down there and, and, uh, and we fish for a few minutes and then he reappears. And, uh, <laughs> and he says to me, he's like, yeah, this is where me and all my, my friends come 
around, around noon or one, drink some beer and escape our wives from nagging at us all day. <clears throat> so here's, here's these retired, so stages of life. Here's this guy, probably, right, just sitting around the house doing nothing. And his wife is tired of him sitting around the house doing nothing. And so like, go get out of the house. And so I'm just going to go drink beers and fish. So we, we, we want, there are things in our lives that we desire and they're different for everyone. Probably most of you here this morning, trout fishing and drinking beer isn't it. <laughs> Having a friend and a close companion, it probably is. Having financial security, having a meaningful friendship, a meaningful marriage, a happy family, having adult children that get along, that are healthy. There's so many things, and, and I say this all the time. Often those, the things that rival Christ in your life are very good things. They're just not meant to take the place of Jesus. So the simple command is this. Follow me. To help us deepen our understanding of that, it means you must leave everything behind to follow Christ. Part two to this simple command is that Jesus calls you to himself. Jesus commands Matthew and just says, follow me. And here's what's really important, and it's easy to get a little bit off track on this. Jesus is calling you to himself. He is not calling you to a religious church. He's not calling you to a set of doctrines. He's not calling you to a set of beliefs. He's calling you to himself. He's calling you to a person. Here's what one author said this week, and this grabbed my attention, talking about the call to a person. He says this, you know that there is a radical self-centeredness about Jesus. If you, if you look at the things he says, such as this, before Abraham was, I am. Here, these are just some things that Jesus says. I and my father are one. You must love me and hate your father and mother. The devotion you should have for me is so much greater than devotion, than the devotion you have for someone else, including your father and mother, and your devotion to your father and mother. That the devotion you have for me should look like hate in comparison. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members of your whole body than to be thrown into hell. This is Matthew chapter 5. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body into hell. It is a radical self-centeredness that Jesus has. Now, what does this mean? The way, that you are, the way that you know you are being called is when you are confronted with the radical self-centeredness of Jesus. That Jesus is calling on all of us into a relationship with him. Not into a set of religious procedures or structures or allegiance to a church or to a Bible teacher. He's calling us to himself.
the first priority is to see that we must come to grips with is that Jesus is calling on us to follow him. It's a radical devotion. It's not a set of rules. It's a commitment to a person. That's verse 9. If you turn back to Matthew, let's finish up the passage and, and we'll see what else we can learn from this. A simple command to leave everything behind. A simple command to full-hearted devotion to Jesus. And then he concludes with this, that Jesus calls all of us to learn compassion. Let me just show you, of all the things that Jesus wants to teach Matthew after this conversion experience, it's not a set of rules, it's not a set of doctrine, it's compassion. Let me show you. As Jesus reclined at the table, so immediately after Jesus calls Matthew, he goes over to Matthew's house for a meal. Verse 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The first thing Jesus wants to teach us is about compassion. And we learn here that immediately this this jumps out at us. That external religion separates and divides people. The Pharisees, the first thing they notice are the people that Jesus associates with. And it's important to note this here, and this will develop as you read through the book of Matthew, that the Pharisees are observers of Jesus, that they're taking notes, that they're paying attention, that he is disrupting everything that external religion is about. There is a structure of religiosity that Jesus is turning upside down, and the Pharisees feel threatened by this because he's associating with people that do not deserve compassion. When we think about this today, we are, as we all know, we are in a time in our country that is extremely divided and fractured. I read an article this week, and it was uh, from a few years ago. Tim Keller wrote an article in 2016 before the national elections, and it said this, you are a Christian first. And what happens is if we're not careful, we look at the externals of people. We look at um, what they're against, what they're for, and we align ourselves with people who are like-minded. And we criticize and we attack people who have different views. And the point of the article is this, that you are a Christian first in every area of your life. That as Christians you should be able to have different political views because you are a Christian first. Christians should not be divided over politics. They should not be divided over secondary issues. They should not be divided over issues of associating with people who are viewed as the outsiders. And what happens is when the basis of your life is moralism and religious externalism, 
You partner with people who are like-minded, and you criticize and attack people who are not. And here's what's important. Jesus always unifies his followers. He always seeks to build camaraderie and unity within his followers. So Jesus is announcing a message of compassion and kindness and hope. And here's what they say. Why does your teacher, they're speaking to Jesus' disciples, why does your tax collector, excuse me, (laughs) why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Why does Jesus Christ associate with the unwanted? And here's what's interesting. He responds with a medical analogy. Here's what it is. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. This is really interesting to think about for a second. Jesus is teaching the Pharisees a point that they completely miss. It just goes by them. And what is this? They don't realize they're sick. They can only see the flaws in other people. The Pharisees have this picture right in front of them and they completely miss it. And here's why. And here's why, how we can miss it. It's very easy for me to be in denial over my own sin. And it's true of you as well. It's true of all of us. It's true of the Pharisees. It's very easy to notice the flaws in other people. And I feel like I talk about this a lot, and it's an important reminder. It's true of your pastor. It's true of your church leaders. It's true of the worship leaders. It's true of the Sunday school teachers. But don't worry, it's true of you as well. It's very hard to see your own sin. And that's why Jesus uses this extreme humor and says, why are you paying attention to a little micro speck in somebody else's eye when you have a two by four in your own eye? We all have to be reminded of that. The tax collectors are the sinners and they don't even realize it. They're proud, they're self-righteous, and they're arrogant. And they don't even know it. That is the irony of this. Jesus is showing what it truly means to be a follower And he's going to explain it even more. And here's how he he concludes. He says, go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus, this is from Hosea chapter 6. And Jesus is saying that a compassionate, merciful, kind heart is more important than than the sacrifices you make in following me. Let me share this quote with you that I read this week about this passage. First of all, Jesus is saying this, look away from your sacrifices. This is the author now. They are going to screw you up badly. A lot of people are looking at their sacrifices. Here's a test to know whether or not you are hoping God will give you the good life that he owes you. Here's how you can figure it out. You're always feeling upset. You are always feeling grumpy. You are always feeling anxious. 
Your life is not going the way it ought to. Maybe you come to church all the time. Maybe you study your Bible. But there's a low level of anger that you're repressing because you don't want to admit to yourself that you're mad at God. Do you know what that is a sign of? Pharisaism. Do you know what this is a sign of? Religion, of external religiosity. Do you know what this is a sign of? The old system by which you make God owe you. You sacrifice, you bring it. Jesus is saying here, look away from your sacrifices. Why do you think you're messed up? Why do you think you're anxious? Why do you think you are worried all the time? Because you feel like God owes you more. That you feel like God owes you a better life. And so Jesus is saying, go learn this. Look away from the sacrifices you make. And instead, learn what it means to be a person of mercy. It's an interesting word. The word means compassion. It means leniency. And it's used in many different places in the Bible. Let me just give you just a a brief sketch of what this word means and how important it is. Number one, just I've got four things I want to share with you about this word. Number one, God has it as part of his character. Thank you, Jesse. Says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has shown us. It's part of who God is. Number two, God saves us because of it, because of his compassion. Titus, he has saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God gives it to us. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Are you asking God for compassion to be a more merciful, compassionate person? The last one is this, that compassion is essential. James 2 says this, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. That should cause us to pause. Cause me to pause this week. Are we people of compassion and mercy? Are you willing to take time to get to know people, to understand the struggles they go through? Or are we quick to criticize? You know what? By nature, I'm quick to criticize. It's far easier. It takes far less effort. Blow people off and criticize. Compassion and mercy takes help from God. Verse 13 says this, that Jesus says this, I came to call, there's our word, we're studying the idea of embracing the call of God. I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Jesus came for people who are aware of their flaws. If you are unaware of your flaws, 
You are among the righteous. Matthew saw himself as a tax collector in desperate need of Jesus. And that's why he got up and followed Jesus. He was in desperate need. I'm asking you to embrace the simple call of Jesus on your life and to daily count all things lost for the sake of knowing him. And when you do that, you will lead a life of compassion. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We ask that the simplicity of this passage, of this story, would touch our hearts. You're speaking to us this morning with the simple words of follow me. And I pray that your spirit would work within our hearts to walk away from the things that compete with you in our lives. We love you. We confess we're in need. Thank you that you love us and that you reach out and you speak to us. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.